6. Hebrews chapter 6. And this evening we'll be in verses 9 through 12, but I'm going to read the whole first part here for context. So beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him in contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop that is useful for those whose forsake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being crushed. Its end is to be burned. Although we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in the serving of his saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Lord, we want you to be praised and glorified through our worship, Lord. Really, that's what we desire to do here is to worship you. And although we do get much benefit from taking in your word and hearing it preached to us, Lord, the ultimate goal is that our hearts would be hearts of worship and in zeal to you. So we ask and pray that you would be pleased to use this text, Lord, to shape, to change, to fit us to be more full and more rich in our worship of you. And that also, Lord, that you would do the work of molding and shaping us to be in more of your image so we can do, like this text says, and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ for your name and for your glory. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. In talking about this particular text, specifically what we looked at last week with some people throughout this last week, I got the hint that many people felt during their Christian life, and I don't think right at that moment anybody, but people have felt like somewhere along the way they've really struggled with have they committed 
these kind of sins. A sin that is so bad, a sin that is so grievous that there is no longer any possibility for repentance. I know that over the years that people have struggled with that and I think anybody who's been a Christian for any length of time has really wondered if they have not in some way, shape, or form, if not committed, gotten very close to committing that unpardonable sin that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 12, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I connect those two not because they're an exact correlation, not because the writer of Hebrews is referring back to that particular thought, but in both instances, there's no repentance for these people who have committed these particular sins. In Jesus' case, in Matthew 12, those Pharisees were attributing the work that they knew could only be done by God to Satan and saying Jesus was actually empowered to do what he was doing by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus' condemnation of them was that they, in making that statement, making those judgments, have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So I often tell people, well, have you seen Jesus performing miracles here in front of you? No. If you had and you saw those miracles and you knew they were only from God, would you attribute those to Satan? Well, no. Well, then you're fine. You haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here, though, we come to a passage that is not nearly as specific and precise in its judgment, right? Here we come to a topic where you can have a lot of the blessings that come from being a part of the church. You can have a lot of the blessings that come from being united with a group of believers, and yet after having experienced all of the blessings and all of the glories that come from being a member of God's church, turn your back on that and leave that church and go do other things, go follow after other endeavors that we would call sinful, then there's no longer repentance for you because you've left the very best thing that there is. Now, I said last week that this is a warning and that warnings in the New Testament are designed to have the effect that they do what it is the warning says should happen, meaning that for those people who believe and trust in the Lord, it will be effectual and they will repent and they will abandon their sins that are leading them down that road, or at least they'll trust in the Lord more and fight those fights to a greater degree. But for those who have never been truly born again, their hearts will become harder They will begin to fight against the Holy Spirit and they will end up walking away and leaving the faith. In our day and age, there are, I think, probably some of these sins that people think that if they go and they commit these sins, that they are considered unpardonable sins. That if you're in the church and then you go and you commit these sins out in in your life or in the world or whatever, that there really isn't any hope for you to come back to. And I think that the church at large throughout uh, at least American history hasn't been great with showing grace. It hasn't been great with bringing people back in. It hasn't been great in pursuing those who what we might call have been backslidden. Maybe. It hasn't been great in saying, 
There go we, but by the grace of God. And so when we hear this particular warning, and it has that effect in us of drawing us back to the Lord and reminding us, there go we, but by the grace of God, we would be well served to be mindful of the fact that it's only by the grace of God we are here where we're at in the first place. And that when we do encounter people who are flirting with leaving the faith, walking away, abandoning the salvation that God has provided, that we would do it with gentleness and yet fear. Gentleness because it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We want to exhibit that kind of kindness towards them that we know we would want if we were in their same position. And yet with fear, because we wouldn't want to be found out allowing for certain sins that actually do need to be dealt with. The Holy Spirit is dealing with them, and we want to be ready to deal with them as well and not being found to allow them to continue in their sin because of our supposed permission. So we want to deal with gentleness and we want to deal with fear. And honestly, that comes back to ourselves as well here within the context of the church. So when we pick up in verse 9 and he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's saying, I am confident that for you believers, this warning is going to be effectual. That's the entire assumption there. This is his presupposition for saying everything that he said in the first eight verses. I'm speaking this way, but I'm confident, beloved, that this warning is going to be effectual for you. Proving your salvation. Displaying your salvation. It will have its sure and effectual work. And then he bridges the gap with talking about, notice what he says, that talking about dead works, talking about these instructions of washing, talking about these elementary principles that oftentimes can become legalistic in some people's minds. And here he moves on to talk about true and genuine works. The bridge from verse 9 into verse 10, 11, and 12 really wants us to go from the idea of the warning to what is the warning supposed to produce. And so for the rest of the sermon here, the point is is that the assurance of your salvation should produce good works. The assurance of your salvation should produce good works. Meaning, if you have heeded that warning that exists in the beginning of this chapter, you've read it, it has brought that fear and trepidation, it's brought the understanding, man, I can't turn away from Christ because if I do, there's no more repentance. There's nowhere else for me to go. I'm, I'm not going to leave. The Hebrew Christians hearing that needed to hear that hard word so they wouldn't go back to this Judaism or this Jewish mysticism that was... They were flirting with. And so for them, heeding this warning would have been saying, yeah, he's right. I'm staying here in the church. And what that should do is it should produce within you good works. It should produce within you a zeal to do that which is good in the body of the church. So let me ask you this, and this question be in your mind the rest of the service. What good works are you doing for Christ In the name of Christ for the body. That's probably the best way to say it. What good works are you doing in the name of Christ for the benefit of the body? 
That's what he's getting at here in these three verses, 10 through 12. Look what he says. For God, verse 10, is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. First of all, he says God is not unjust so as to overlook. First thing, this is kind of a parenthesis, but I think it is helpful. There are things that God overlooks. God, I'm so glad, forgets about sins. Are you? You should be. (laughs) With vigor, you should be like, amen. (laughs) Because if we don't have the forgiveness of our sins, the forgetfulness of our sins by the Lord, we don't have any salvation. Now we're going to get to the new covenant when we get to a few chapters ahead in chapter 8. But he quotes the new covenant in chapter 8, but it's from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God inspires Jeremiah to write this, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, here's why. Here's what brings the knowledge of the Lord. For the Lord to say, I know them, and for them to say, I know the Lord, it requires one thing, and the new covenant gives us that understanding, and it's right here. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Our sins are no longer remembered. Now, that's interesting because here in this context, he's saying that they're committing sins that are so great and grievous that if they continue down that road, it's going to lead them to the path of no repentance, where they're not going to be able to turn their back. So they're going a direction that if the Bible is allowed to say what it says is the most dangerous road for them to go down. Now, people commit lots of sins, right? And they're still a part of the church. They're in the church. Because God remembers them no more. God has forgiven us and cleansed us of all of our unrighteousness. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. This is something that makes God so amazing and so different because we as people are fond of remembering sins and sometimes bringing them up in ways that aren't helpful and idealistic. But God forgets sins. Why? For his own namesake. Because he has adopted us into his family and in doing that has cleansed us of all righteousness. So now we no longer are subjects of his judgment, but rather we become objects of his love, his grace, and his mercy. We are on display for all eternity as how good and gracious and loving God is. So God forgets sins and it is a beautiful thing that he does. But here, in this case... He wants to remind these Hebrew believers that there, are, that there is something that God doesn't forget about, that he doesn't overlook. 
And that's two things. Number one, it's their work. And number two, their love that they've shown for God's name's sake in serving the saints. Now, both of these things you can do in exclusion of the other, right? You can love and not work. And you can work and you can not love, right? There are a lot of people who do both. And I think the love and don't work are those people who just want to write checks to organizations and not actually pick up their finger to actually go out and do something. Oh, they have a big heart, a bleeding heart, as it were, but they don't want to actually go out there and get their hands messy and deal with people. Good night. (laughs) Who would want to do that? So here's some money because of my love for this work that you're doing. And there's people who work, who get out there and they do get their hands messy, but in the day to day, in and out of it, they don't love people. I experienced both of these when I worked at the Jesus Center. That there was people who would say, oh, I love what you guys do down there. Oh, yeah, here. And they would stop and write out a check and hand it to me. And I sometimes, because I'm a wily kind of guy, would say, oh, hey, with this, you should come down sometime. And you could just see the horror come over their face. (laughs) The fear of actually having to go down and encounter a homeless person, much less a whole group of them, huddled up in one area, hungry for food. And then there were people who would come in and they would do the work. I think of one guy in particular who he was like, and he would say this, he's like, I'm earning my crown. Don't anybody forget it. He would come in and he was just grizzly and angry all the time. And he would tell you, look, I'm Catholic and the reason I'm here is because I'm earning my way. He'd say that. He was fully aware of what he was doing and saying. And he had no love for the people that he was serving. He hated them all. But he did what he did because he wanted to believe, at least in his own heart, in his own mind, that what he was doing was going to if not get him out of purgatory, at least erase a whole bunch of years for him. So we can do both of these things to the exclusion of the other. But what assurance does, what confidence does, what you heeding the word of God does, is it causes you to work with an attitude of love. How does that happen? Here he talks, he explains exactly what that looks like. You have shown for his name's sake, in serving the saints. Here's what it is. Do you want to know how to do this? Do you want to know how to work in love? It isn't just, you know, I love Lucas. So Lucas has this project that he's working on, and he says, hey, Pat, will you help me with the project? And I say, yeah, you bet, Lucas. I'll help you with the project. And so we go into the garage and we project the project and we get it all together. And then at the end of it, I give him a big old hug and a noogie and I'm like, oh, I love you, buddy. Right? Now, those things are all true and I've displayed love and I've worked along with you because of my love for you. But that's not what the text is saying, is it? The text is saying that what I do is I serve the saints in his name. I serve the saints in the name of Christ. I serve the saints because of our mutual redemption. And if I want to stay in the context of what I've just said, our mutual being in the forgetfulness of God. He has forgotten all of our sins. And I love him for that. 
And therefore, I want to serve you in his name, giving him all the glory and honor and praise. I don't get up here to preach for my voice to be heard. I don't like my voice. I'm always nervous getting up here and doing it. And it isn't because I think, oh, you just need a good pep talk and who else is going to do it, so I might as well get up here to do it. It's because I love Jesus. I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. And what I want is I want to glorify and honor him by pointing you all to Jesus. I want you to see him as bigger, you to see him as greater. So the work that I labor to do in preparing sermons, in preparing studies, in talking with people, and in getting together with the church is work that I want to do that God is glorified, Jesus is exalted, and you all receive the blessing because you all are a part of the body of Christ as well. So we just finished up our Servanthood Saturdays. And we've established quite a few ministries that are coming up. One of the most wonderful things that I'm so pleased about is we're going to be ordaining three new people to the deacon ministry. So make sure you are here on July 8th, because that is when we're going to have the service, Lord willing, for that. And I'm so excited to be able to have Rachel and Joel and Ellen become ordained members of our leadership here at the church. That's exciting to me. That's thrilling to me. And what that should do for all of us is excite us because we see other people coming along and wanting to do the work of the ministry because they love Jesus. So they're serving the saints within the body. We recognize them as such because they love Jesus. That's it. They love Jesus. In Matthew 25... You know that section there in Matthew where he's just given the Olivet Discourse and he's talked about the end times and his second coming. But from there, he moves on to a couple of parables and both of those parables are talking about us being ready for when he comes, being aware, awake, and wise in the midst of the generation that we live in. But at the end of that passage, he says these things, beginning in verse 34. Then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, verse 37, will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? I don't remember you coming to me and being a stranger. I'm pretty sure I never saw you naked or in prison. When did I do those things for you, Lord? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, verse 40, as you did it to the least of the saints, the littlest ones, the least in the kingdom, you did it to me. You did it to him. 
Jesus is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name's sake and in serving the saints, and you still do. We do it, the work we do for his name's sake. And if we do it with other motives and other hearts and other attitudes, which let's be honest, lots of people do, the work will still get done, but it's not an act of worship. It's not something that's glorifying to the Lord. Now, it might bring good glorifying results in the lives of those people, especially if they're saints, but that doesn't mean the heart and the attitude with which it was done was one that was an act of worship. But another thing he says that we might miss, because there are a lot of people in the church who want to go out and they want to do, do social works. They want to go out and there's popular phrases that are thrown around in the church like redeeming culture. You know, where we're supposed to go out in the culture at large and we're supposed to redeem it for Christ's sake. Well, here, look what he says. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the culture at large. Is that what it says? What's it say? The saints. You guys can say the words. It's okay. (laughs) In serving the saints. Now Jesus, again, in John chapter 15, he's just about to leave... he's just about to go to the cross and one of his very last encouragement to his disciples is this very point, is in this very realm. He says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now look down at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me my disciples. You see, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, therefore abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than someone lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you to do. So do you want fullness of joy? Do you want to know that the work you're doing will last for eternity and will bring blessing and benefit? Then do it as an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we abide in him. We rest in him. We don't have to work and strive to be in him. The work that we do should be a natural outflowing of our salvation and connection to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So I glorify the Lord by my actions because I worship him and I thank him for all the grace and peace and mercy he's given to me, the wrath he has removed from me and placed upon Christ. And I, in turn, because of the love God has for all of you, serve you with an attitude of worship towards him. God is not going to overlook that. 
that is not a small thing to the Lord. And I really believe when he says in Matthew 25 there, these simple things like giving a cup of cold water or feeding somebody, that he is not just there speaking in hyperbole saying, oh, just even these simplest little things, you know, you can have that in your mind. <clears throat> He's, I think, being specific. If I were to, you know, Leona were to come walking up here, right? And she's thirsty, and I can clearly see that. And I, with my heart of love for her and love for the Roberts, give her water, and I'm thanking the Lord for her. That is an act of worship. And I believe the Lord is more pleased with that than if I had $8 million and wrote an $800,000 check to some homeless or some other kind of you know, ministry that's out there. I really believe that based upon what we just read. If my heart is in it as an act of worship because of my love for her, her parents, and the church at large, because of what God has done for each and every one of us. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, this is a big, long sentence, and it's kind of bulky, and I'm not going to break it completely down for you, but I do want to look at a couple of things. One is the desire for them is that they not continue to be sluggish. And the word sluggish there can also be translated dull, which we have already seen in chapter, 11, or chapter 5, verse 11, where he says that I have much to explain to you, but it's hard because you've become dull of hearing. Assurance of your faith is the solution for dullness and sluggish faith. Assurance of your salvation is the answer for the mundane, the routine, the slog that we get into as Christians. And we all get there, right? Every single one of us has times where just keeping on one foot in front of the other, walking with the Lord, is a slog. It's hard. It's difficult. It's almost like, okay, you, you've heard the phrase, your prayer's hitting the ceiling. Where it just doesn't feel like anything dynamic is happening. The assurance of your salvation is the cure for that. The confidence that you are indeed in Christ and that he has indeed called you to himself is the answer to that. Let's look at a couple passages. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my father's hand. Pardon me. Will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than them all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Here is some of Jesus' strongest words of assurance. Christ has called you with his own voice to be one of his sheep. 
You have heard it. You have responded to it. You have come to him. Him calling you and bringing you in as one of his sheep, he has given you eternal life. Not kind of, sort of, get you their life. Not maybe if you will life. But eternal life. He's called you in and he has given you a life that is eternal that will never perish. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. In fact, they together in their unity within the Trinity have chosen you, elected you, brought you to themselves, called you, saved you, given you life, are sanctifying you and will get you into their heaven infallibly, absolutely certainly, without change, without fail, you are his. You are absolutely, absolutely, absolutely saved if you are in Christ. If you are one of his sheep, there is nothing that can ever change that. You can't wiggle out of his grip like a bar of soap in the bathtub. You can't be snatched out by that rascal Satan. It can't happen. He, almighty God, has said, you are mine. And if he says you are his, guess what, folks? You are his. And you will never, ever, ever stop being his. He has brought you to himself that he might keep you for himself for all time. There's nothing you could possibly do to let him down and go, oh, jeez, boy, I chose poorly with this one. Because he already knew about all of the sins you have ever committed, are committing right now, or will ever commit before you even were born. In fact, before time even began. So if that's the great grand plan and purpose of God, then there's nothing you can do here in your own little bubble of time and space to frustrate the eternal purpose of God Almighty. That's assurance. Do you see, that is a foundation for doing good works. That is a foundation for continuing in love. That is a foundation that when things are hard and difficult in life, that gives me hope and gives me passion and gets me going. I do oftentimes need to stop and step back. Just this week, I had a moment where I was really getting frustrated with something that was going on. I mean, pissed. And sin was rearing its ugly head. It was crouching at the door, right? There in Genesis, that's what God says sin is going to do. It was poking its little fingers under saying, come on, you really want me. You know it, open this thing up. And I kind of did, if I'm honest. (laughs) But I had to stop and just completely go get by myself for like 10, 12 minutes and just earnestly pray, Lord, Lord, oh, Lord. I know this isn't what you want from me. I know that this attitude that I have, I am not loving people in your name. I am not worshiping you with my life right now, Lord. Lord, I need this correction. And it happened to be that I'm studying for this, right, to preach today. And so this kind of thing was in my mind. And so my mind goes to God speaking to me through his word here. You're mine. You will always be mine. You will never stop being mine. You're going through this right now. Yes, you're frustrated, but you are mine. So go back out there and remember, you're mine. 
That was it. That's all the Lord needed to communicate to me. And it was from John chapter 10 here. And it was those words that I am his. Nothing is going to snatch me out of his hands. And that reminder of that big perspective. That this little thing that's happening right now is so insignificant compared to God and his greatness. God and his grandeur. And him choosing to love me and save me from my sins. Let's look at one more. I have a few more, but let's look at one more. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, the love of God is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I like this passage for lots and lots and lots of reasons. One is it's this famous passage where God is love. But notice the context of John saying this. It's we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love to the believer. God is love for the Christian. God is love for those who are abiding in Christ. That's the context of God is love which is so often missed and so often forgotten. And in fact, let's be honest, they don't even have a clue where this passage is in the Bible, for the most part. But here it is. God is love. And by this love, we've been perfected. That doesn't mean you you get it, right? That doesn't mean that you are absolutely, completely glorified now in these bodies. It means that you are being made complete in him, that you will never be wrecked in your faith, but you will get to the end that God intends you to be at. And we have confidence because of this. I have the full assurance of hope because of this. Hope, assurance, confidence compels me to do good works because there's nothing to fear. There's only that I only want to worship the Lord because of his great love with which he has shown me. The last thing he calls us to do here is be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, he's really going to get into that in Hebrews chapter 11. And I think this is a foreshadowing of that, if I'm honest. Because you notice over and over and over again, they all by faith did this, by faith did this. And a lot of that faith is combined with patience in their lives. And so they endure. They walk with these people have lived the lives of faith. And he tells us to follow in suit. In Hebrews chapter 9, we have this word of encouragement though. Christ entered into the holy place, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. 
For the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the red heifer for purification of the flesh. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see that there? He combines eternal salvation with service of the living God. We serve the living God through good works that are empowered by, founded in, the assurance that we have in our salvation. I love here how the author brings in both love, hope, and faith, and we see this cropping up over and over in Scripture. Faith, hope, and love, right? There in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And the greatest of these things is love. But really, the life of the Christian should be marked with these three traits, shouldn't it? Faith, confidence, hope, and love for God and for the saints. Beloved, this is what our lives should look like as lives of assurance. Eternal security. Confidence that we cannot lose our salvation in Christ. Results in faith, it results in hope, and it results in love. And all of those lead us to good works. So the question that I just leave you with today is here, as you're with the Lord and as you're walking with him, you're here, you're hearing his word. What good works are we doing that are motivated by the assurance that we have in Christ? It should, and it can be, don't get me wrong, it's not trying to heap a guilt trip on here because I do believe it's simple things like, you know, there's Charlotte walking in the aisle and let's say her shoe comes off and I pop it back on and I really do it out of a love for her and Christ. That's an act of worship just as much as if I were to, you know, do the most monumental task I could think of if it was an act of worship. They're all pleasing to the Lord because our heart is one of worship to him and gratitude. Let's be honest. (laughs) Thanksgiving is something that we do have an exclusive hold on as Christians. Because we don't work for anything. Our work flows out of the established position we have as eternal, secured beings because of God's great love for us. So, beloved, my encouragement for you is to pray, Lord, how can I work? How can I serve? How can I do all this? In gratitude, so thankful for all that you have given to me, having secured my eternity in heaven with you, having forgiven me of all of my sins and cleansed me of all of my unrighteousness. Lord, how can I serve your people in your love for your namesake? Lord, we pray that you would take these words that we've heard tonight and that that they would be words of encouragement, of excitement, and, and that we would think in, of unique, delightful little ways and even big ways that we can serve you and serve your body, serve the church and bring you glory and honor, Lord. We thank you and we love you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.